I know that you were looking forward to us covering the WEF meeting at Davos last week, but there was breaking news on Tuesday that we need to cover. A federal judge has ruled that the Trudeau government's invoking of the War Measures Act was unconstitutional, unreasonable, and essentially illegal. So what we want to do is take you on a journey all the way back to February 2022 through to the Public Order Emergency Commission and all the way up to two days ago where Canada responds to this incredible news. We'll also get some perspective from Pastor Aaron Rock at Harvest Bible Church and James Kitchen, LCC's chief litigator. My desire for our episode today as we've put together the various video clips and stories is that it would be like a really good movie. We want to make you laugh. We want to make you cry. We want to make you fall in love all over again. It's January 25th. I'm Andrew DiBartolo. That's Matt Halleck. And this is Liberty Dispatch. Hey, hey, and welcome back to Liberty Dispatch, broadcasting across enemy lines into the Canadian culture war. As always, our show is produced by the partnership between Liberty Coalition Canada and Christian Week. LCC exists to establish Christ's justice and righteousness and defend those who stand. And Christian Week exists to provide a practical, balanced, hope-filled perspective on national and global issues if you appreciate all that we do we would ask that you would go over to our website libertycoalitioncanada.com slash donate you'd leave a donation over there and if you give to the analysis show tab um, to our productions here for the podcast you can get a tax refundable um, donation as well and all donations regardless of where you leave them can be left through anonymous bitcoin donation thanks to our friends over at bull bitcoin um so we would ask that you would prayerfully consider help us helping us continue to bring the news and analysis that you need to know as always our stuff is over at the flf network the fight laugh feast network flfnetwork.com check out our podcast as well as many other wonderful ones including leadership now with our dear friend and pastor dr aaron rock uh, who we will have later on the show so you definitely are going to want to go over uh, to your google player your apple app store and get um the the new pub tv app to get all our content on demand andrew Big episode. Mm-hmm. Got to tell the people. Comments, questions, concerns. Mailbag at LibertyCoalitionCanada.com. But what do you have for them by way of mailbag question for today's I mean, podcast? What it's else obvious. can I say other than <laughs> tell us your thoughts about the decision on Tuesday? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Tell us, uh, tell us, do you think that Justice Mosley is, uh, is, is feeling a little suicidal? Do you think he's going to get Clinton? <laughs> oh, no. Um uh, I mean, his name, his name wasn't forbid. on the flight logs, so. God forbid. So he's, yeah. he's, he's free in the clear, <laughs> but yeah. What do you, what do you think about, about what's happened? What do you think about this decision? And we're going to, you might be thinking what decision? <laughs> I don't know what rock you've been living under, but I, mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there are people who they just, they consume no media. They don't talk to anyone. They haven't been aware of what's happening, but if you haven't, then hold on when the episode's <laughs> done, then send us your questions about your response to everything. So hit us up, mailbag at libertycoalitioncanada.com. I look forward to fielding these questions. 
If you're using MailChimp, HubSpot, or Salesforce for email marketing, CRM and sales, you probably know they've been canceling voices of freedom and truth, including suspending us for a week not that long ago, simply for crafting an email, including an interview that Mike did with Deanna McLeod on the COVID jabs. So that's why we at Liberty Coalition Canada have decided to switch over to Sales Nexus. Sales Nexus is a complete business marketing and sales solution that won't tell you what you should say or believe. Try it yourself at salesnexus.com and get two users for the price of one with the promo code LIBERTY. That's salesnexus.com. So let's let's set the stage here, okay? The the previews have just ended. <laughs> that cheesy commercial telling you to turn your phone off. It's getting really dark. Popcorn. Yeah, Scotiabank is telling you you're richer than you think. <laughs> right? If you go to movies, you understand what I'm talking about. The popcorn, <laughs> you're richer than you think. Cheesy CGI superheroes flying through. You, you're, you're, that's happened. Okay, you're sitting down. <laughs> the trailers are done. And now we begin the actual show. Okay, on February 14th, 2022. Two weeks into what was the most glorious Canada Day celebration in Ottawa. Very patriotic. Justin Trudeau and his federal government declared war on their own citizens by invoking the War Measures Act. Now, they say it's the Emergencies Act. It was rebranded in the 80s, <laughs> but it is the War Measures Act. It's just they didn't want everyone to know that it's used to make war, used to, to, to declare war on your own citizens. But that's what happened. So... I hope, I hope as this movie begins, that you're sitting down. I hope you're not operating any heavy machinery. Please, <laughs> please, oh, please, if you are prone to vomiting and seizures, you have been forewarned. I'm truly sorry that we have to play this for you right now. But like with every good movie that has hooks in the past, we need to bring you up to speed and do a little bit of a flashback as this begins. After discussing with cabinet and caucus, after consultation with premiers from all provinces and territories, after speaking with opposition leaders, the federal government has invoked the Emergencies Act to supplement provincial and territorial capacity to address the blockades and occupations. I want to be very clear. The scope of these measures will be time-limited, geographically targeted, as well as reasonable and proportionate to the threats they are meant to address. The Emergencies Act will be used to strengthen and support law enforcement agencies at all levels across the country. This is about keeping Canadians safe, protecting people's jobs, and restoring confidence in our institutions. These tools include strengthening their ability to impose fines or imprisonment. The government will designate, secure and protect places and infrastructure that are critical to our economy and people's jobs, including border crossings and airports. We cannot and will not allow illegal and dangerous activities to continue. The Emergencies Act 
will also allow the government to make sure essential services are rendered, for example, in order to tow vehicles blocking roads. And finally, it will enable the RCMP to enforce municipal bylaws and provincial offences where required. We're not using the Emergencies Act to call in the military. We're not suspending fundamental rights or overriding the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. We are not limiting people's freedom of speech. We are not limiting freedom of peaceful assembly. We are not preventing people from exercising their right Lies. to protest legally. We'll always defend the rights of Canadians to peaceful assembly and to freedom of expression. Lies. But these blockades are illegal. And if you're still participating, the time to go home is now. Man, it's so, so hard to so get it, through two minutes of so that guy speaking. Out, it turns out, okay, that every single thing he said was a lie. It was, yeah. it was all untrue. Mm -hmm. Every last bit of it. But the War Measures Act is invoked. We all know what happened in Ottawa. We've seen the video clips. We lived it. And so one of the consequences consequences of invoking the War Measures Act is you need to have a public order emergency commission. Now, the federal government played it off as, oh, look, we're opening ourselves up to scrutiny, when the reality is it was a requirement. There's nothing they could say or do about it. So we had the public inquiry, the, oh, sorry, the public order emergency commission, into the invoking of the War Measures Act, which was chaired, interestingly enough, by longtime Trudeau friend, Justice Paul Rouleau. Now, it was clear to anyone with a brain, after numerous testimonies from the RCMP officials, CSIS officials, OPP officials, and Ottawa police officials, that there was no justification for the invoking of the War Measures Act, none. However, to almost no one's surprise, this is what the commission found. One of the most cherished rights enjoyed by Canadians is the right to engage in political protest. The ability of individuals and groups to publicly voice their dis dissent enriches and empowers our democracy. It's hardly surprising that government health measures would cause some form of protest in response, given their impact on people's lives. What was surprising was the size and scale of these protests and the way in which they proliferated across the country. The majority of those who participated in the protests were animated by a genuine desire to engage in peaceful demonstrations so that their voices would be heard by leaders in government. They wished to exercise their fundamental right to express their political views and they had a right to do so. However, like any large group, there were a diversity of views and intentions among the participants of the Freedom Convoy. Amongst the many who intended to protest peacefully were others who had more sinister goals or who were willing to engage in dangerous conduct to achieve their desired ends. For reasons that I discuss in my report, what began as a massive protest evolved into something entirely unprecedented, an occupation of the core of the nation's capital.
after careful reflection, I have concluded that the very high threshold required for the invocation of the Act was met. In particular, for reasons that I discuss in detail in the report, I have concluded that when the decision was made to invoke the Act on February 14, 2022, Cabinet had reasonable grounds to believe that there existed a national emergency arising from threats to the security of Canada that necessitated the taking of special temporary measures. I do not come to this conclusion easily, as I do not consider the factual basis for it to be overwhelming. Reasonable and informed people could reach a different conclusion than the one I have arrived at. So that was it. No consequences for tyranny, no restitution for people who mm -hmm. were arrested, who were assaulted businesses that were destroyed, livelihoods that were devastated. No, 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 it was fine. It was, you know, mm -hmm. and they keep harping on this. It's an occupation like this, 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 this jamming language. So yeah. And Andrew, I just, I just want to yeah. say really quickly, the admission at the end is, tr was truly astonishing. And when this all came out and we covered it, we pointed to that fact that the factual basis not only is not unanimous, pointing to the legitimacy of the use of the the EA the emergency act so called but it is underwhelming significantly underwhelming and i think that little last part was to cover his butt uh because he knew the the amount of evidence was so so putrid and so small yeah so the liberal government decided that the actions taken by the liberal government were justified and in accordance with the opinions of the Liberal government. Yeah. That's what that's what we get coming out of this and, POEC. And they got a rubber stamp from their friend. <laughs> yeah. My buddy said I did a good job. Yeah. <laughs> so I I remember being in Ottawa the day that we were pushed off of Wellington, mm -hmm. the day that we were essentially made out to be domestic terrorists in our own country by our civil government. So I want to I want to share with us. I don't, I don't know if I've shared any of this publicly simply because you know what was going on but this is what it looked like from my perspective this was me in ottawa on that day at various points of the day covering what was happening as as what the public order emergency commission found to be a justified response to a canada day celebration so we are past the center point of parliament hill They've moved up quite a bit this morning, all within the last hour and a half. They've moved all the way from the Chateau Laurier past the midpoint of Parliament Hill. There have been some loud bang grenades, some tear gas, a few people have been arrested. Uh, as they keep pushing up, they're also kind of taking their tactical vehicles up, tactical vehicles up with them. They've taken people out of the Andrew, it looks it's very violent. Right now. Not really. I'll also let everyone know that that is the front lawn of Parliament Hill. That is supposed to be free land for Canadian citizens to protest and gather and assemble. And it is full of police officers guarding it. And Canadian citizens are prevented from going on Parliament Hill. I guess singing Oh Canada was too much of a threat. And Oh Canada has broken out. 
So I don't know if you can see, but there's some snipers on the roof there. Hello, snipers. We zoom back out. I mean, there are a ton of officers, more officers than protesters. I mean, not just here at the line, but back on Wellington, way back in. There are so many officers. So in a rather depressing irony, the war memorial in our nation's capital, commemorating and remember the sacrifice and service of soldiers in the past in order in part to secure our rights and our freedoms is guarded by a large fence that runs all the way across, preventing citizens from traveling freely in Canada, which is one of our charter rights and further enforcing the police state. So as a very, very sad picture when that is blocked by officers and gates so the Canadian citizens cannot access it. Ground, Andrew, uh, good intrepid reporting there. Um, but those are the scenes. And then on Tuesday, this happened. The JCCF first broke his story that really dominated Canadian news. And um, it was a massive and shocking story. In short, a federal judge found that the Trudeau government had no legal justification for invoking the War Measures Act, renamed the Emergencies Act. This is from the JCCF news release. Quote, the constitutional challenge to the invocation of the Emergency Act was filed on behalf of four Canadians, God bless them, who had participated in the peaceful Freedom Convoy protest in Ottawa in January and February 2022. They are Jeremiah Jost, a 28-year-old contractor and volunteer fighter, firefighter from Alberta, Edward Cornell, a 64 year old retired military veteran from new brunswick reverend harold ristow from ontario a former canadian armed forces chaplain and retired officer with canadian special operations forces command <clears throat> and vincent gerchies a retired decorated member of the ontario provincial police the Justice Center is pleased to announce that the legal and constitutional challenge against the first ever invocation of the Emergency Act filed as Jost et al. v. Canada has been decided in favor of the citizens who participated in the peaceful 2022 Freedom Convoy in Ottawa. The Justice Center provided lawyers for these Canadians who launched a court 
action within 10 days of the Emergency Act being invoked and who sought a court declaration that the Emergency Act was invoked without justification. In the actual release, Justice Richard Mosley stated the following regarding his decision. I have concluded that the decision to issue the proclamation does not bear the hallmarks of reasonableness, justification, transparency, and intelligibility. And it was not justified in relation to the relevant factual and legal constraints that were required to be taken into consideration. In my view, there can only or be only one reasonable interpretation of EA, the Emergency Act, Section 3 and 17 and Paragraph 2C of the CSIS Act, and the applicants have established that the legal constraints on the discretion of the GIC to declare a public order emergency were not satisfied. Due to its nature and to the broad powers it grants the federal executive, the Emergency Act is a tool of last resort. The GIC cannot invoke the Emergency Act because it is convenient or because it may work better than other tools at their disposal, which, as a side was a lot of the justification that the feds gave for invoking it. Nevertheless, we'll continue quote or available to the provinces. Um, this does not mean that every tool has to be used and tried to determine that the situation exceeded the capacity or authority of the provinces. And in this instance, the evidence is clear that the majority of the provinces were able to deal with the situation using other federal law, such as the criminal code and their own legislation. While I agree that the evidence supports the conclusion that the situation was critical and required an urgent resolution by governments, the evidence, in my view, does not support the conclusion that it could have been effectively dealt with and it couldn't have been effectively dealt with under other laws of Canada as it was in Alberta or that it exceeded the capacity or authority of a province to deal with it. For these reasons, I conclude that there was no national emergency justifying the invocation of the Emergencies Act, and the decision to do so was therefore unreasonable and ultra-vires, which means without legal authority necessary, which, Andrew, means we were right. It was lawless and yep. unconstitutional, which yep. it's just he he points to the sections that we pointed to in our commentary, sections three seventeen paragraph two c. It's just prima facie that means on the face of it, absurd that they use the invocation of the emergency yep. and act. All, all the things that were reported during the public order <clears throat> emergency commission, you had yes. officials from CSIS, the OPP, Ottawa Police, all saying the same thing, mm -hmm. and even the RCMP. Listen, we had the means to deal with it. We could have dealt with it on our own. We didn't yes. need this. Yeah. It just, you know, it was really helpful. So we're going to we're going to hold back on commentary for now <laughs> because what we want to do in a bit is we want to show you the response from the state and its propaganda arm to this. But before we do, we want to say 
with interest rates and inflation on the rise, now is the time to make sure your money is working for you. Don't lock your money in GICs and don't give it to woke mutual fund companies to weaponize against your values. Call our friends at Rocklink and let them show you how to get your money working for you while making sure the businesses you invest in aren't working against you. Call Rocklink at 905-631-5462 or email Rocklink at info at rocklink.com. That's link with a C. Now, as you would expect from petty tyrants, whenever they're told they can't do something or <laughs> that they did something wrong, right? Instead of admitting it and asking for forgiveness, they go out of their way to justify their tyranny and double and triple down on what they did. And they obviously deploy their massive propaganda arm, the Ministry of Truth, or what is the state-funded <laughs> legacy media in Canada. Now, I, I'll say this again, as I did earlier. I'm sorry, very sorry, <laughs> that I have to subject you to this next clip. It's a longer one. But you need to see how these news people respond as they're tripping over their words, how they're utterly shocked that their employer and daddy, the state, can and should be held to account for its actions. They just cannot believe that the government teat that has been feeding them and propping them up was actually told that they were wrong and must now be accountable for it. You have to see they just they just they don't know how to they don't know how to deal with it. A federal court has ruled the government's use of the Emergencies Act during the convoy protests back in 2022 was not justified. The CBC's Karina Roman is live in Ottawa. And Karina, you've been reading over the decision, which runs nearly 200 uh, pages. So we're just all kind of getting our heads into it. But so far, what have you been able to glean from it? Okay, so let's just go over the language that the judge used in terms of his conclusion, um, saying, I have concluded that the decision to issue the proclamation, that would be the invoking of the Emergencies Act, does not bear the hallmarks of reasonableness, justification, transparency, and intelligibility, and was not justified in relation to the relevant factual and legal constraints that were required to be taken into consideration. And uh, now, obviously, that is uh, news <laughs> that he found very differently than the public inquiry, the Rouleau Commission, um, which found the government was justified uh, in invoking the Emergencies Act, Andrew. Um, and of course, you know, in this 190 plus pages, there are many, many reasons, um, and he goes over the arguments of both sides, just to give people a sense of what parts of the charter uh, we're talking about. We're talking about Section uh, 2B, which is the freedom of expression, Section 8, which is uh, search and seizure. Uh, he did not find that there was any infringement on the right to assembly, uh, because even though, of course, uh, you know, people were restricted uh, in where they were allowed to go, uh, that is you know, allow, there's a reasonable limits. But in terms of freedom of expression and search and seizure, that's where he found there were infringements. Um, and in terms of the justifiability, uh, Andrew, you'll recall uh, that there was a lot of talk about the CSIS definition of a national threat uh, to security. And what's interesting is the judge found 
it, it doesn't actually matter whether or not CSIS uh, said that there was a national security threat or not. I mean, that should be given weight that, it, you know, it's something to actually consider, but it's not the sole reason to invoke it. So you might say, well, then why did he say they were unjustified? And, and again, Andrew, I've only read parts of it, but uh, from what I gather, it really comes down to this was not a national emergency, uh, that the police uh, and the provincial authorities in different regions, whether we were talking about Alberta and Coutts or whether we were talking about Quebec uh, or, or Windsor, they were able to deal with uh, the problem at hand. What really the problem was Ottawa. Uh, and that means it wasn't a national emergency. Uh, and he talks as well about some of the financial penalties they brought in in terms of seizing and, and freezing bank accounts uh, because that affected people beyond just the people they were trying to affect. That itself uh, was an overstep. Um, but he does say that the cabinet had the right and the power to invoke in terms of that is within their power, but uh, they did not have the justification. It was an unreasonable uh, move uh, based on all the evidence before him. That's really interesting, uh, Karina, that the cabinet had the right to do this, but that this was an unreasonable invocation of the Emergencies Act. We should mention uh, that our Kate McKenna, uh, our colleague, says that the Canadian Civil Liberties uh, Association is going to be putting out a statement in the next few minutes, and they're one of the groups that brought this mm -hmm. forward to a federal mm -hmm. court. So can you give us uh, that context? Well, yeah, so they obviously, uh, and, and in fact, the judge um, praised them and said this is, shows why it's important to have these public interest litigants um, to bring these cases forward. Uh, but it was interesting as well in part of his judgment is he talks about how if he had been at the table, you know, making the decisions, that he does recognize that hindsight is 2020, mm -hmm. uh, and that in the moment, uh, he may have even been persuaded uh, that this was necessary, uh, but that in the light of day, when you, when you actually get to hear all the evidence and see uh, what the applicants, in this case, the Civil Liberties uh, Association, but others as well, uh, that then you get to see, well, actually, maybe it wasn't. Um, and so he does say there is a recognition of this benefit of hindsight and time to actually go through it, but in the moment, uh, you might be seized with the sense of urgency uh, that, you know, calmer heads prevail as time goes on and in terms of looking back on what was really going on. So that's interesting. Uh, I don't, don't think anyone will be surprised to hear, Andrew, that there probably is going to be an appeal of this. Uh, so this is not the end of that. Um, it would be hard to see the, the government not appealing this. Uh, so it probably goes on to the next level, which I believe is the Federal Court of Appeal. Uh, and of course, this lands on the wrapping up of uh, the cabinet retreat mm -hmm. uh, in Montreal. So I'm pretty sure we're also going to hear from from cabinet ministers on this as well. Well, if you don't hear from them, I'm pretty sure reporters will ask them about it. Yeah. Uh, but Karina, <laughs> let, let's talk a little bit about that because I'm trying to kind of understand uh, the consequence. I mean, there, I, I guess there could be political consequences, obviously, but are there other kinds of potential consequences for the government, given that a federal court has ruled that they have the right to do this, but it was unreasonable? Uh, from what I can tell, no, the, the, the applicants did not ask for any remedies. So mm. there's, there doesn't seem to be a, a, a penalty that the, the remedy that they were looking for was a declaration uh, that this was uh, unjustified, unreasonable, um, and that is what they got today. Uh, so interesting, they didn't ask for costs from what I can tell. Uh, so it does seem like this is more a, a political uh, ramification for the government than anything else. Uh, and, you know, 
because it's not the final court, uh, because it will go on, that does give the government some room to perhaps say they disagree with this ruling, um, or that at least they need to, like the rest of us, take some time to read it before they, they go forward and decide. Uh, but considering this, especially considering the parties that were involved in this protest um, and, and what that has meant for this particular government in terms of um, its uh, brand, its uh, messaging, uh, the whole thing about you know where the opposition was more supportive of the convoy uh, and what it was trying to say and that these people are just trying to express themselves. Uh, it certainly then feeds into that narrative uh, that the opposition has tried to push, uh, that the government um, overreached, overstepped. Uh, and this obviously uh, a, a blow to the, the government's uh, argument that, no, this was very much needed. So uh, it, it's definitely something we're still trying to parse. So two two quick things. I know it's a long clip. Two quick mm -hmm. things. Number one, they kept saying, oh, they the, the judge kept saying they had the right, but it was unreasonable. Number one, that's not the only thing the judge said. Mm -hmm. He didn't just say it was unreasonable. He said it was outside of their legal authority, which yeah. means it's illegal. So yes. they don't want to say that because the CBC Amen. does the bidding of the state. Yeah. But, the, but Justice Mosley said it's unreasonable and it's unconstitutional. And you only mm. have the right to do it when it's within the legal authority. And, you, don't, and, you can't say, I have the right to murder you. But in this instance, the murder was unreasonable. And it That's also not how it works. It also should be noted, Andrew, that... So she's saying eh, Mosley kind of let him off the hook. Suppose he did uh, by saying, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. You know, even he made an interest against admission saying that, you know, had I been in the room, maybe I would have made the same decision. And it's easier now in hindsight to kind of ha cooler heads prevail. But that's the job of of lawyers, of politicians, to let cooler heads prevail and to work within the, the yep. bounds of the law. That's what they're there for. They, they swear an oath to, to, to uphold the rule of law in our nation. So they, they should be, they sh it, it, it mostly does talk, and we, we talked about it, how this ought to be a last resort. And it was clearly not a last resort. It was used preemptively and prematurely and all the considerations that Mosley points to were before the politicians, the cabinet, all the people who made this decision, those arguments were before them. The, the, the rights were very clearly laid out. The justifications and the threshold to meet them was very clear, clearly laid out, and they chose to, in spite of all the factual evidence not actually meeting those thresholds, to go ahead with invoking the War of Measures Act. So CBC just wants to kind of be blasé, waving their hand over and saying, "Well, hindsight's twenty twenty. We could have done better next time, or we should have, we could have maybe yeah. come to a better decision." No, the fact of the matter is, as Andrew, you said. It was an illegal decision, and they had all the information that they needed to not make an illegal decision. And we should not be letting them off the hook because they yep. acted lawlessly and tyrannically, and they physically abused their own citizens. They stole people's money and froze their bank accounts. They essentially uh, ostensibly called can peaceful Canadian citizens who were lawful terrorists. They must be held to account mm -hmm. for this tyranny.
it's also interesting to note at the very end there, she said that the real issue, so what, what she said without saying it was, the real issue isn't what's right or wrong. The, framing. the real issue is that now the conservatives have a better narrative than we do. That's all that matters. And, all and, that matters is the conservatives now can tell a better story and that mm -hmm. their story is more believable. And it looks like now they're driving the narrative. That's yeah. all. That's all they care about, which is very sad. It is. It is. But it also proves us right yet again, because what do we say? It's all about. It's all about narrative art uh, crafting. Yep. That's what it is. And that's what she's lamenting. Oh, darn. The conservatives yep. now have something uh, on top yep. of us. Yeah. Yeah. So next, we want to show you Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland, <sighs> who you can tell is shocked by the decision, because mm -hmm. while she was all chuckles and smiles when bank accounts were being seized. There ain't no chuckles She looked and like she was on high on cocaine. Anymore. Let's be yeah, honest. She, she was looked not like she was high She basically, because Trudeau said, Trudeau or said, or something. I'm going to suck my thumb in the corner. Can you please go deal with them? <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. That's what happened. He's like, I'm, I'm going to send out the B team. So yeah. here's her shocked with the decision and promising to use our tax dollars to fund the legal battle that's required to justify their tyranny. Yeah, it should really come out of the, the Liberals' war chest, I think. But anyways. So we are aware of the court decision. We have discussed it with the Prime Minister, with Cabinet colleagues, with senior federal government officials and experts. We respect very much the invocation of Canada's the experts, Andrew. Independent Gotta judiciary. love it. However, we do not agree with this decision and respectfully, we will be appealing it. I would just like to take a moment to remind Canadians of how serious the situation was in our country when we took that decision. The public safety of Canadians was under threat. Our national security, which includes our national economic security, was under threat. It was a hard decision to take. We took it very seriously after a lot of hard work, after a lot of careful deliberation. We were convinced at the time, I was convinced at the time, it was the right thing to do. It was the necessary thing to do. I remain and we remain convinced of that. Talks like him. Like yeah. even her cadence is the yeah. same. It's so disquieting. But we, yeah. so we'll, we'll just, more lies, but mm -hmm. not, we're not done yet because the rest, <laughs> the rest of the B team had to, had to throw some comments. So, Last, we have Public Safety Minister Dominic LeBlanc saying pretty much what he was told to say and attempting to gaslight us into oblivion, which is, again, the preferred tool of the psychological warfare employed by the state. I think it's important to remember the context almost two years ago uh, today, uh, those weeks uh, in late January and February two years ago, uh, the public safety and the national security context. Uh, I was in Ottawa during those weeks, uh, as were my colleagues. I participated in the cabinet discussions. We were updated by senior officials about the risks of 
uh, copycat incidents at other border crossings. I spoke to premiers from British Columbia to Nova Scotia about risks uh, to their uh, community safety. Uh, we saw border crossings and the damage to the Canadian economy, thousands of jobs put at risk. We spoke with the Premier of Ontario and the Government of Ontario that supported the invocation of the Emergencies Act two years ago. I think that's an important moment. I think it's also important to consider the government was given information uh, with respect to the disruption at the border crossing in Coots, Alberta. Uh, it's not banal when the security services tell you that they found two pipe bombs and 36,000 rounds of munition uh, and ended up laying criminal charges as serious uh, as conspiracy to commit murder uh, and assaulting peace officers. So, the context is important. I think it's also important to note that the House of Commons ratified the decision to invoke. Um, but as my colleague said, uh, the judicial system uh, also includes uh, appeal mechanisms and the government's made that decision. But uh, I certainly, as a minister who participated in those discussions and who spoke to premiers across the country, uh, am very satisfied that we made a reasonable decision. Uh, and we'll now let the appeal courts uh, consider uh, the filings from my colleagues. So there you go. It, notice more narrative arc fitting, right? They're crafting a narrative. They're, oh, shoot, 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 shoot. We got to get this story in the spin mach machine. And what what's the word that you heard from both um, uh, Freeland and also LeBlanc? Context. We need to contextualize. We need to nuance the situation, Andrew. We need to massage it so that we can craft a narrative that will actually justify what we did. But the problem is, guys, feelings aside, the factual evidence clearly is against yep. you. You say it's a national emergency. Well, CSIS, who's in cha charge of national defense, didn't agree with you. You yep. said it's beyond provinces to deal with, except provinces dealt with it. Every every province dealt with So even what he said about the Coots, the, what happened in Coots, they dealt Prov with it. They dealt with it. it the provincial only issue authorities was in dealt with it. Yeah. The only issue was in Ottawa. Um, literally, as you've made mention already, premiers across our nation, the majority of them were against the invocation of the War Measures Act. They were against it. So uh, this is all just narrative. Um, yep. What we're seeing here is people who thought they thought that they would get away with it and nothing would come of it. Yep. I think that's what and they, they thought. thought. They thought they, 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 thought they had it got away with it. Yep. They could do it. They'd pull it back. Mm -hmm. They knew that they knew that Rouleau would, would go to bat for them. They knew the media would go to bat for them. So they were hoping that, that this would just be over and done with. Mm -hmm. And I think they're shocked at the fact that we're here right now, which is which is good. And we want to talk about that in a bit. But first, we need to talk about your finances and your money in light of the fact that bank accounts were frozen and assets were seized. Separating money from the state is a core tenet of Bitcoin's ethos, a permissionless network where the individual is in full control and accountable for his own property. Bull Bitcoin, Canada's most trusted exchange since 2013, is built around this ethos and leverages it in its mission to end central banks forever. At Bull Bitcoin, where security and privacy are priority, they take it upon themselves to help empower individuals with the most potent form of money the world has ever known. 
Head over to mission.bullbitcoin.com slash LCC and get started with your account's creation. Contact Bull's best in the business customer support team at any point throughout the process to request assistance. Mission.bullbitcoin.com slash LCC. Take control of your money. So before Matt and I give some of our own concluding thoughts on the decision and its implications, we wanted to bring in two men to discuss the decision and the appropriate responses to it from both a pastoral and a legal perspective. So first, we wanted to bring on Pastor Aaron Rock. Aaron is the teaching and founding pastor at Harvest Bible Church in Windsor, Ontario, as well as serving as the Fellow of Church Leadership at the Ezra Institute. You can also listen to his podcast, Leadership Now, which if you don't, you should. What's wrong with you? Aaron, thanks so much for joining us. It's always great to have you on The Dispatch. Hey, guys. Thank you very much. Looking forward to having this conversation. It's an exciting time. Yeah, yesterday was a big day in uh, in news. It was a busier day than I thought it was going to be. I was hoping to get a little bit more done, but the breaking <laughs> story, of course, the federal judge has ruled that the state's invoking of the Emergencies Act, or as I prefer to call it, we kind of cut through the euphemism. It's really the War Measures Act. They just rebranded it so it didn't sound quite so violent. The judge found and decided that its invoking was unreasonable and ultra vires, or another way of saying without the legal authority to do so. So, Aaron, you've just come back from some time out of the country. And so I wanted to ask you, receiving the news yesterday, what were your initial thoughts on the court's decision? How were you processing it when you first got the information? Surprised, but also uh, delighted. Surprised because there have been very few wins. There have been some draws along the way as we have uh, pushed for uh, justice. Uh, those of us that stood up against the tyranny of the state and its intrusion uh, into all spheres of life. There have been very little wins for people, a lot of disappointing outcomes. But this was certainly a blessing to hear. Of course, we know that the federal government is going to spend more of the taxpayers' dollars appealing it. But the fact that there has been a win at this point and a measure of justice is certainly encouraging. It's encouraging to hear that we've had a federal judge say that Justin Trudeau and all his flunkies' uh, decision to uh, call for this act in order to suppress dissenting opinions, um, that it was illegal. You know, one of the most disgusting things in all of this is how the news has uh, constantly covered the, the protesters, whether it be at border crossings or on Parliament Hill, as some sort of renegades that were disrupting the lives of citizens in Ottawa, uh, framing them up as uh, neo-Nazis and people that are wanting to overthrow the government. Nothing could be further from the truth. These, these were the most patriotic people in our country, I believe. Uh, they were out of jobs. They were literally denied employment. They were denied employment benefits. They were denied the privilege, uh, the right rather, to leave the country. They were being suppressed unnecessarily by the tyrants that have governed our country now for several years. And they stood up. They went to the nation's capital, which, by the way, does not belong to the citizens of Ottawa, it belongs to all Canadians. They went to the nation's capital and symbolically protested peacefully against the tyranny of the state. They are Canadian heroes. They should be applauded. There should be a bronze statue uh, erected 
in honor of these individuals. And uh, I'm delighted that this news has come out. But of course, we know that the nefarious powers that govern our nation will do everything within their power to try to reverse it, uh, to try to denigrate, to try to uh, label uh, this movement as uh, somehow negative. This is one of the classic uh, signs of, uh, of evil. They call good evil and evil good. But regardless, I'm excited, at least for today, and uh, we're looking forward to uh, several several more victories uh, in, in the future. Frankly, I hope the government is sued. I hope everyone that's lost money is reimbursed. And uh, I hope that the signal goes out that this can never, ever happen again in our great nation. Yeah, and it's interesting because, as you said, uh, mainstream media, the political class, Trudeau regime, tried to make the ordinary Canadian citizens of all different various backgrounds who participated in this freedom convoy out to be the lawless one. But we now understand from this federal court, we knew it um, based off the word of God, that it was actually indeed the government that was the law lawless one. And um, I'm just struck by even within the secular modern mindset, how they don't even have really Velcro strips for the government being <laughs> themselves uh, the tyrant for them being the lawless one, because they essentially believe our rights derive from uh, privileges granted by the state, uh, so-called. So that, the, that's very interesting. And I, I love that we, we still apparently have federal courts who are willing to actually look at the law and apply that law even to government. Um, it gives me more hope in our legal system than, than I um, had previously. We'll see what comes from it. And I think we need political will coming out of this decision. But Aaron, a question for you. As a pastor who, you know, you publicly stood against the state you joined arms in a very public way of putting yourself out there on social media you were all over the internet standing shoulder to shoulder with with the protesters for the freedom convoy so for you as a pastor, what is the significance of this? Because I'm sure you heard over and over again, you know, this isn't, come on, Aaron, you're a pastor. This isn't the hill to die on. Why are you, why are you putting your SNECA on the line? Why are you putting yourself out here to, to um, stand shoulder to shoulder beside a bunch of hooligans? What's, what does this kind of mean, this decision? And, and how would you kind of respond to that kind of sentiment? Mm-hmm. Well, because I'm a pastor of a local church, of course, my, my concern at the beginning revolved around our local church. I, I wanted to be able to continue to minister alongside with our elders and staff to our people. That's our responsibility. And we were pretty convinced early on that the uh, pandemic claims were highly exaggerated and that uh, the, the harms done by lockdowns and, and these various uh, mandates were, were worse than the, than the disease itself. But then, of course, we began to see the broader effect on culture. And one of the roles of the Christian church is to remind the state when it transgresses um, its sphere of authority that it's in the wrong. Uh, Nathan the prophet was unafraid to walk into David's chamber and say, you've done wrong. Uh, you've, you've murdered a man, you've taken his wife. It's wrong. Uh, he was not coronated. Nathan wasn't the coronated king. Uh, he wasn't the Davidic ruler. Uh, he was a prophet. And of course, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 5, uh, the apostles of, of the New Testament also resisted 
the state when it sought to uh, act in an evil way and ban the proclamation of the gospel. So I, I feel that it's uh, perfectly within our our uh, realm of responsibilities to, it's our right and our responsibility to speak to civil powers when they, they transgress and they abuse. And um, I can tell you early on that we had some people that are pretty godless people, but who nevertheless were standing against tyranny. I remember one individual said to me, you know, if the church doesn't stand up, who will? And this is a guy that I'm not sure has ever donned the doorstep of a church. So even in our cultural psyche, if you will, there's this historic notion that one of the roles of the church is to hold the broader state accountable when it transgresses God's laws. And I don't feel any guilt over that at all. In fact, in some ways, I wish I'd have done more. Um, but I want to make one more comment just back to this um, this decision by, by the federal judge. I think that this, the, the, the PDF document I received is something like 190 pages long. So I obviously didn't have a chance to read it, but I did skim through several sections. And, and in, in his his ruling, the judge makes a very interesting statement. He, 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 he mentions that he himself, if he'd have been at the table, probably would have voted in favor of the Emergencies Act. But when the lawyers came to him and, and presented the information and he deliberated over it, he realized he was wrong. And what I really appreciated about that is, is what we call humility. Uh, here's a man, I don't know what his faith persuasion is, but here's a man that was willing to look at the facts and change his mind. And that required humility, humility that is now in writ, in writing for all the world to see. And, and that, that was a, a blessing to my soul to see a federal judge uh, demonstrate a measure of humility. And, and that in fact is one of the necessary characteristics of those that are involved in jurisprudence, uh, a, a just judge is a judge that is willing to consider the facts objectively, to walk in humility, not to consider him or herself to be a demigod, but to consider the facts and to consider the impact of state decisions over its, its, its citizens. So in, in some respects, in some respects, and I don't wanna take this too far, that judge uh, is, is demonstrating what we read in Romans 13. He is, he is truly acting as God's servant. Uh, he is truly acting as God's servant, God's deacon, by demonstrating one of the cardinal moral verities of the Christian faith, which is humility. And, and I think that's a delight to see, and we need to push for that and hold our uh, judges to account, not just to deliberate over matters in keeping with the laws of God, but also dem to demonstrate those internal, uh, internal characteristics that are the mark of uh, a, a truly benevolent ruler or in this case, a benevolent uh, justice. So um, yeah, we stood against it. We'll stand against it again. If the tyrants of our country think they can get away with this again, they get another thing coming. Uh, the people will not tolerate it. The majority may buckle, uh, but there always will be a righteous remnant. And we are among them. We're not afraid of calling ourselves that. We're not being arrogant. We are among a righteous remnant that is standing for the sovereignty of God over all creation. And we will do it again. Uh, but for the here and now, uh, we just, want to bask in the joy and the delight uh, uh, of the moment and this uh, this small win, maybe more than small win for the people of Canada. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely vindicating. It, it, it definitely feels that way because, you know, when you put your neck out there, when you take these stands, uh, you, you're bucking the trend. You're going against you know, the tide and to, yeah, see a judge in humility kind of 
make an admission against interest is 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 pretty uh, pretty awesome to see. And it does give you hope for the 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 objectivity uh, of our legal system in some way. So as we as we consider these things, you know, one of the things that I I saw to be true about you know maybe Canadians in general, maybe even the Christian Church in particular, is we have become very reactionary in that something will happen externally and we'll just respond to it. We'll scramble. Let's respond to it. But one thing that we have not been, at least for the last 30, 40, 50 years, maybe even in our country is good at initiating and planning and forethought and, and building and being ready as opposed to simply reacting to what they do. So I say that because yesterday, as I was looking through my social media feed, I saw a lot of different people, a lot of different believers of many different stripes talking about now what? And so how are we supposed to respond? What's what, what's the goal now? And so some people are leaning into the political side of things. They're saying, okay, now is the time that Trudeau has to resign. Now's the time we need to throw all of our eggs into the conservative party. Oh, no, we need to throw our eggs into the PPC. So people are thinking the goal now is to focus heavily on getting this guy out of here if he won't resign and getting the right political people in place. So that's one perspective. You know, other people, I'm sure they're thinking different different things in terms of now what do we do? So what I wanted to ask you, Aaron, is as someone who's very much involved in culture building, in engaging in the culture, and in thinking wisely in a multi-generational culture war, what should Christians be thinking and doing in light of this decision? Now this has happened, what needs to be the focus or how should Christians be engaging with this, at least for now, kind of kind of victory in the courts under our belts here in Canada? Well, let me take about the next 12 hours to, to outline my plan. <laughs> Just kidding, but you understand that there there's a, there's a lot to that question, and it's a great question, and um, I, I appreciate being being pressed uh, into the practicalities because one of my concerns is that many of my brothers, whom I love, who took a similar stance, I don't think I don't think they're spending a lot of time thinking about the practical uh, outcomes of all of this. You know, there's a lot of guys preaching against it. There's a lot of guys ranting and railing against it and trying to dice and fine tune and their their theological systems but it's high time that the church of jesus christ became actively involved in actually bringing about gospel redemptive change in our culture and and that means guys if you see yourself just as a preacher you're not pastoring your church the, the a, a pastor is far more than a preacher a, a pastor is a leader he's an administrator uh he's he's a prophetic voice we need more men like that we're going to equip God's people for the work of the ministry, both within the church walls and outside the church walls. Now, in broad strokes, there are a couple things that come to mind. The first is that we have to undo the lies that people have been taught. So we have to continue to teach and equip people to think more broadly about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Too many of us grew up thinking that the gospel of Jesus Christ all revolved around our personal salvation and nothing more the exit plan, how to get saved, and how to get to heaven. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is in fact predicated upon the fundamental claim that Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And without that, you don't even have a gospel. 
So when we think of him as being king of kings, that in and of itself is what we would call a political statement. It extends beyond the walls of the church to the kings, the queens, the prime ministers, the presidents of our nation. So we have to keep preaching over and over again and keep modeling over and over again that we believe that Jesus Christ is king of kings and lord of lords and that his laws are not reserved for the ecclesia. His laws apply to all men and all women everywhere in every culture at every point in time. In fact, to deny that, I would say, is a cardinal heresy. It's not a mere difference of opinion. It's not a doctrinal ecclesiastical or denominational distinction. It is a heresy to deny that Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It is fundamentally undermining, uh, taking out the foundations of the gospel. So we have to keep preaching the truth and teaching the truth to people, that Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that, mean, that means that he is Doug Ford's king. He is Justin Trudeau's king. He is Aaron Rock's king. He is Andrew D. Bartolo's king. He's Matt Halleck's king. He's everyone's king. So we're calling people back to surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And people might think, well, that sounds like right-wing extremism. No, it's actually in our charter. Uh, when our charter begins with an acknowledgement of the recognition of the supremacy of God, it's not talking about the Hindu God. It's not talking about Allah. It's not talking about yourself, if you perceive of yourself as God. It's talking about the God of Scripture, the God whose laws were the basic founding principles of our nation, uh, the United States, and other commonwealth and Western nations. So having got all that down, we needed to think about the practicalities of it. And the reality is, is it, it's, it needs to start from the most basic institution and culture and move its way up. We need Christian people to take to take full responsibility to take dominion over, over culture and over creation. Uh, we need Christian men to take full responsibility for leading and guiding their wives and their families uh, under Christ as Christ loved the church. We should have no problem with that. We need parents to take full responsibility for the educational processes of their children, whether they're partnering locally with a Christian school, a home a, a homeschooling network or a parental schooling ne network. We need to take full responsibility for the education and I would say indoctrination of our children instead of sending them off uh, to the secular godless state to be polluted by all these false ideologies. And then we need Christians to, 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 to re-engage in entrepreneurship and businesses and commerce. We need Christians to, to engage in the political realm. We need more Christians to run for office. We need Christians to aspire to the judiciary. I know it's going to be incredibly difficult, but we need Christians to essentially step back out into culture instead of hiding in their holy huddles and demonstrate the values and purposes and blessings of kingdom living to the world around us. So it's a multi-pronged approach. Everything from starting Christian credit unions to starting banks to planting new churches to starting Christian schools uh, to... Uh, investing in, in, in Christian investment companies, taking dominion, stepping out and taking influence over culture once again is a priority. And then, of course, building relationships with people who don't get it, building relationships with people who are victims of injustice, uh, demonstrating that we care for them and we love them and we're willing to uh, champion their cause, and that we're willing to be persistent uh, in advocating for justice and culture. 
there, I mean, there's so many things, you know, I, again, I could take hours and hours and hours to, to discuss this, but I would say if, if, if you wanted like a soundbite to take away, the people of God need to do a better job of declaring the kingship of Jesus Christ over their personal lives and over all of culture and to take dominion for Christ. And by the way, maybe a little off topic, but we needn't be attention seeking in this regard. Okay, taking dominion isn't about uh, you posting pictures of your latest workout because you're taking dominion over your body, but in actual fact, you're just looking for attention. Uh, taking dominion isn't getting up and ranting and railing and spitting and hollering and acting like a tough guy preacher so that people think that you're, you know, you're, you're resisting the state. We need to exercise humility in this process. Uh, we need to exercise love in this process. The world needs to see that we love them, that we love Christ, that our primary concern is not our individual freedoms or our stature or our time in the media or on social media or the applause of men, but we need to demonstrate the values and virtues of the Lord Jesus Christ by lovingly, but boldly and unflinchingly pushing for the values of the kingdom to be acknowledged in all spheres of life. And that begins in our homes, again, with our families and our churches and our businesses and with our engagement in the, in the political realm. One final thing, when this um, news uh, breaking news came out yesterday. The first thing that crossed my mind is the parable of the persistent widow. What a <laughs> wonderful, what a wonderful parable for us. She had beseeched the unjust judge over and over and over again for justice. And it was actually not because he had a change of heart, but because of her persistence that he eventually buckled and granted her justice. And in, in that context, of course, we're being called to pray for it. So I want to encourage the people of God, let's set aside this neg negativism that we often hear, and let's demonstrate a optimism in the Lord Jesus Christ's power to change lives. I think that's a beautiful thing. We need to pray for change in our culture. So in addition to taking dominion, we need to pray that the Lord would do what we cannot do and accomplish what we cannot accomplish. And ultimately in that process, of course, he gets all the glory. And at any point in time, if Jesus Christ chooses to come back, so be it. So be it. We'd be delighted in that. Mm -hmm. But in the meanwhile, we need to press for the supremacy of Christ over all creation. And we need to do that with humility. And we need to do it with love. And we need to be persistent in that process. And then just let God be God and do what he sees to sees fit in the process. Amen, and, a, brother. and a hopeful expectation, right? Like you were, yeah. as you were mentioning that about being optimistic in our, our prayers. I, I thought about mm. the beginning of James when he writes, you know, if you're specifically in the context of wisdom, if in the midst of suffering, you're lacking wisdom, ask God for it. But then James has this curious section where he says, but don't ask like a double-minded man. Don't ask the way, the way a lot of Christians pray, which is, you know, God, I would really like this. If it's not too much trouble, we don't want to presume your will. It would kind of be nice, but we understand if you don't, could you please do this? James says that's a double-minded man. That that's that ask with a sense of like the way a child, like the way my kids ask me for the same things a hundred mm -hmm. times over and over again. <laughs> I, it, why, why is it that they don't understand? The answer is no. Mm -hmm. It's because every time they ask, they hope hope that maybe this time will be time that I will give the answer yes. 
And it's that kind of expecting that God will say yes in a humble way. We don't presume his will, but we, we, we come to him and say, Lord, work in this way, act in this way, accomplish these things. We know you can, we want you to, um, is exactly the kind of posture that believers need to have. So I'm thankful mm-hmm. that you you brought that up. I think that's a good good mindset for us to have as we consider how we're praying for our mm-hmm. nation and for the gospel to work itself out and for the advancement of God's kingdom. Mm-hmm. We need political will in this moment to hold these people accountable, but we also need a long-term uh, vision of the future. And the only way we're going to change our co- country, and we say this, I know, on both of our programs, is you can't solve cultural problems politically. You have to solve them culturally. And at the root and the heart of culture and changing culture is religious devotion. So we have to, uh, we need reformation and revival if we're going to see something truly change in our nation that we can long-term elect a bunch of judges who look at the law like this uh, judge of the federal court did in an objective manner, applying the law. It's lex rex, not rex lex. Um, And we need more and more and more um, people who understand that concept in our legal systems because I guarantee you they're few and far between in Canada right now. So Dr. Rock, thank you again. We love having you on. Uh, You always give us great uh, uh, things to think about. And as somebody who had the courage to stand shoulder to shoulder with many of these uh, people who were maligned for uh, speaking up and advocating for their freedoms. Um, I can't think of a better guy to have on. So God bless you and your ministry and and all that God's doing uh, with you through Harvest and everything like that. Thank you, brothers. Thanks, Aaron. Well, next, we wanted to bring in a dear friend of the program, chief litigator for Liberty Coalition Canada, or as Andrew refers to him, Pitbull at Law, Mm -hmm. James S.M. Sweet Money Kitchen. (laughs) James, it is wonderful to talk to you, uh, and I'm sure you're glad to finally be on your favorite uh, uh, Liberty Coalition Canada podcast. Sorry, Mike. Yes, it's been a while. Thanks for having me again. <laughs> Good to talk to you, man. Uh, so, James, obviously the decision that came down on Tuesday, it was huge. You know, um, it, it made national news, obviously. Um, international news. International people news. Around the, Absol- people around the world were talking about it. Canada is the talk of, uh, of the nations. Um, As someone who specializes in constitutional law, maybe give our listeners – some Velcro strips in their brains to put together all the information so they can help understand the decision and its possible ramifications uh, in Canada moving forward. Well, legally speaking, it is uh, a limited victory. Um, I'm known in the freedom movement and even amongst the freedom minded lawyers as a bit of a pessimist. Um, So I, I, I tend to not get super excited about our, our legal victories because they, they don't tend to be, um, you know, good slam dunks like you sometimes see in the United States, for example. Um, but, you know, for the last three or four years with COVID, uh, even limited victories have been extraordinarily rare. Besides that case out of Alberta that happened here a number of months ago called Ingram, um, we, we essentially have had no other victories before the court's during the COVID era. So this is a victory. I don't want to minimize that. And specifically, it's a victory because we've had two charter violations 
that were actually not justified. And any Canadians who've been paying attention have come to, to view their charter rights as essentially meaningless because although they're protected on paper in law, the courts have basically said, well, we're going to rubber stamp anything that the government does. We're going to call it demonstrably justified under Section 1 of the Charter. And it doesn't matter. You know, they can just violate pretty much whatever. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to have their back. And so this, this is the first time in the last four years with anything to do with COVID, because the Ingram decision was not, de not decided on the Charter. This is the first time in four years you've actually had a judge say, no, there were two Charter rights violations, and they're actually not justified. These violations are unlawful. And so that's a big deal. Um, it's, it's definitely qualified throughout. There's a lot of uh, decisions and language from the judge that, that is very Canadian. It's very, it's very woke. Um, it's very unfortunate. I don't think it's, it's helpful, but uh, you know, I am happy to see those two things. I think that's the highlight for the average Canadian, especially because this is to do with the trucker convoy, which has become so huge culturally and, and amongst you know, patriotic Canadians and, and the freedom movement is to say, hey, you know what? There's actually some vindication for us here. You know, we've got this federal court judge that has agreed that two of our charter rights were unjustifiably violated. So I think I think that's 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 the high level thing that people can take away and say, this is good. We've actually got, uh, you know, a small good thing here that we can be very pleased about and we can hopefully build on this as we come out of this period of tyranny. So it, it sounds like you were pleasantly, moderately surprised by the decision. Would that be fair to say? Surprised by it, pleasantly surprised, but cautiously optimistic. Would that be a fair way of describing your response to it? That, that, that would be fair. Now, <clears throat> the other big point, I, I got to have people understand on this, because I've been, I've been talking about this lots over the years, but particularly just, just lately. And when I say that, I mean mostly on Twitter. I've, I've often said one of the problems with, with COVID generally and with, with the justice system generally across the country is you have our judges, since, since Trudeau has, has come in and, and you know, it's, we're going on, what, nine, ten years that he's been around now, um, you know, our judges are extremely left-wing in their viewpoint. And what that means, because this is just the left-wing view, you know, viewpoint, is that the administrative state is good. Uh, it's good when it's big and powerful. It's good when when the courts um, defer to it a lot and don't interfere with it much. Um, big government is good. Um, you know, individual rights and freedoms are more just sort of a luxury or a nuisance that we sort of tolerate. They're nice, but you know, most of the time um, they're really just inconvenient. They're in the way of the government. You know, ushering in this uh, utopia where the government does everything and provides everything. And uh, individuals are not able to ruin the, the government's excellent motives and actions by asserting their, you know, doggone redneck rights. Uh, <clears throat> that's that's just the left wing perspective. They really think they're making the world a better place. They're generally not evil. They're just, you know, um, I, I think I think wrong intellectually, just wrong. I think I think socialism and big government and less individual rights is wrong and actually leads to great evil, even if there's no in initial intentions for evil. That's just how most lawyers think in this country. Okay, most lawyers are left wing, and they, that's who's been appointed to the bench by Trudeau for the last eight or nine years, and they are ruling according to their political viewpoints, which that's neither that's neither bad nor good. It just it just is because judges are not robots; they're people. Okay. So, all that to say, we've had most of our COVID cases have gone before these types of judges. And I, I was involved in a number of the COVID cases 
you know, and, and the first couple of times I just thought it was coincidence. Um, but then, you know, after a while you see the pattern, right? It's all the Trudeau appointees. It's all the Trudeau uh, chief justices that were promoted by him. And you start to say, why? You know, because not all the judges in the country are appointed by Trudeau. Obviously, we have a whole bunch of judges that have been around for a long time that were appointed by former, even liberal prime ministers, let alone, you know, obviously, uh, Stephen Harper. This guy <clears throat> was appointed in 2004. The, the, sorry, the federal court judge who, who made this decision. Appointed 2004, okay, which, if you know your recent history, was not Harper. That that was a liberal prime minister in 2004, okay? So he's not, he's not even a conservative appointee, but the point is is he was appointed before the Trudeau era. He he is an older, experienced judge that would be cut from a different cloth because he graduated law school in 76, okay? So he views the law a little more like I would, for example, even though he's probably not, uh, you know, a, a raging freedom-minded libertarian like I am. He views the law similar to how I would because he's from that era, right? I, I look at decisions from the late 20th century in Canada I look at the heritage of freedom. I look how rights were upheld. I look. I look at the rule of law, um, you know, and, and and I say those things are good, right? That's our pedigree. That's our heritage. And that's I read his decision, and, and it's clear that some of that is there. Now he comes to findings that I think are a bit ridiculous that I never would, but but fundamentally he respects the rule of law, and his decision is not. You can tell it's not politically driven. It is really driven by the law. All the citations to the law he makes, the way he reasons, I'm like, this is a real judge who actually knows what he's doing. The experience, the decades that he's been a lawyer and a judge really shines through. His respect for the law, his interest in the law is, is there. It's obvious to someone like me reading this. And, <clears throat> and of course, naturally, right, we get that judge, we win. Not completely, but somewhat. And that begs the question, how much of the losses have we had in all these political issues, COVID or transgenderism or whatever it is, are just the result of recently appointed judges who take this 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 new postmodern Marxist view of the law instead of the old you know view of the law that was really rooted in our rights and our freedoms and 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 and, and, and the rule of law and all the things that that, that the 20th century uh, legal rulings in Canada had in them. You know how how much of all this is just because of who these people are and how they're ruling according to their to their worldview and. I want people to see that because that's something that we can and should be doing something about. I've been saying, look, Pierre Polyev, however you say his name, he's mm -hmm. going gonna to become prime minister. Who's he going to put on the bench? Yeah. Everybody needs to start caring about that. Because that yes, James, and that leads into one of the pivotal questions that we want to ask you. We're going to ask you about eventually your thoughts on the, the federal government's appeal and what that might look like, what the process would be. But because you've segued perfectly into it, what are practical steps that we can do in Canada? We've talked about the, the fact that the legal theory that most lawyers and therefore judges in Canada hold to is a progressive, you've said Marxist, you're correct, view of of the law, something that is totally not only foreign, but antithetical to the British common law tradition as it arose out of biblical um, principles being applied to, to law down through, you know, millennia, right? Centuries and centuries and centuries. What, what can we do um, realistically to ensure the people who are being put on the benches are 
actually going to be conservatives. I think of the Federalist Society in the United States of America. There doesn't seem to be a Canadian analog to that. So maybe give some pr practical steps of, of how Canadians can ensure that this one limited victory can actually be a launching point for uh, a legal reform in Canadian society because I mean we've had our friend Bruce Party on the show he's talked about how the licensure um, uh, legal uh, agencies are totally captured by woke ideology like there's so much work to do what is the landscape look like in Canada for the next 40 years and how do we change the trajectory of that? The most immediate practical thing is to make the appointment of judges a political issue, okay, and, 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 and a, an electability issue, okay? So for example, when we think back to Trump in 2016, you got your hardcore Trump supporters, right? But then you got sort of people like, oh man, I don't really like this guy. Um, but you know, I do trust that he's going to have uh, good policies, good, good put people in office, and he's going to appoint good judges. And I care a lot about that. And I, I've always thought there were probably at least a couple million uh, Americans, Republican types, more types like me. That I, I don't go in for Trump's personality per se, but I, I, I care about his policies and I care about who's going to put on the bench. And if I was American, I would have voted for him for that reason. And sure enough, we got three pretty decent judges. Now, Tony Barrett just disappointed me extraordinarily by, by saying it was okay for, you know, millions of, of people to invade the United States from Mexico. So I, but I don't know what's up with that. That doesn't, that doesn't, I don't, that doesn't seem consistent with her rulings, but anyways, we got three decent Supreme well, Court know, didn't, you, didn't, didn't you see the, didn't you see the Babylon B article? It's just in time for her needing to totally renovate and landscape her property. Man. That was, yeah. uh, that was the Babylon Bee's take on it. Oh, I know. I saw Maybe that. Maybe rules, rules just in time of needing a landscaping job in her backyard. Yeah. I I and I Kudos know there's the there's all sorts of... Um, you know, procedurally, like uh, does federal law, Trump state law, all these things. I know that was behind the scenes and they didn't even release. I think it was a brief decision, right, James? So they they didn't even release like a huge written um, aspect for it. So, yeah, it is a little Anyways, confusing. I apologize. I apologize for the <laughs> you took us off. Yes, yes, yes. It, but, but the point still stands, James. <laughs> But that, yeah, it, 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 it matters a lot and not just in the short term, but in the long term, you know, Gorish, Kavanaugh and, and, and Coney Barrett are going to be there for, for years, maybe decades, uh, protecting the freedoms of Americans, protecting the freedoms of, of, of young Americans who were not old enough to vote for Trump back then. They're going to benefit through their whole lives, through their, through their rights and freedoms being upheld by these three justices. Okay. So it, it man, the impact cannot be overstated. Okay. So that, that was huge. I was glad to see that. That's why if I was American, I would have voted back then for no other reason than because of the judges. Okay. But Canadians do not think that way at all. I know from before COVID, I used to, I used to go around and I used to have talks with people. I'd give presentations and I, and I'd raise this issue. And it was just like, I, everybody's eyes would glaze over. No idea. It was not on their radar at all. It needs to be, we need to catch up to the American world half a century behind on this issue. We need to start making who is put on our bench an issue. Right. That should be an issue. You know, you need to people need to be asking Polyev, who are you going to appoint? Are you going to be like Harper and appoint a bunch of lefties on the bench that we're going to get stuck with that our kids are going to have to deal with 30 years from now when their rights are getting taken away? Or are you going to find the few conservative lawyers left in this country who actually uphold rights and freedoms? And are you going to put them on the bench so that they can start restoring our rule of law? 
right? That question needs to be asked of him. We need to make it an electable issue. And then when he starts appointing people, we need to publicize it and hold them accountable and be like, who is this? Is this just some lefty that you like? Is some fake conservative? Or is this a guy who actually upholds the principles? You know, we should get another, another Justice Brown again coming out of Alberta on the Supreme Court of Canada. Right. Mm-hmm. And by the way, there should there should be an inquiry on, on why the heck he's not a Supreme Court judge anymore. That's that's something mm-hmm. that didn't get nearly enough talked about. But I digress. Yeah. That's 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 point number one. There's all kinds of other ones that come about reforming mm-hmm. the law society, sending your kids to law school. Christians don't send their kids to law school anymore. Uh, there's all kinds of long term things. OK, that we can do. But that that right there is starting with number one. There are still a few thousand liberty minded lawyers left in this country that could be put on the bench. And Polyev needs to needs to do that. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I like I think we also have to resurrect the debate. Like in in the states, you have originalism, contextualism, uh, you, or no, strict contextualism. All these legal <laughs> philosophies that are being actively debated in Canada. Everybody just believes more or less in the living tree document, which basically destroys the rule of law. Like we need to, like you say, make these political issues and make these the heart of the Canadian discussion. We need to be become adults, James, as, as citizens and have adult conversations about the rule of law. And I think also, as you've made mention, have a long-term vision to ensuring Christians are going to law, uh, law schools, creating Christian legal societies. All these things are definitely um, something we have to do and do it a lickety split. Well, I, I'll tell you James. one thing is, 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 is when talking reform of the law society, it's going to get worse probably before it gets better. People need to be paying attention. If lawyers like me, okay, get in trouble with the law society, which by the way, everything I just said about the criticism of the court, okay, could very likely land me in trouble with the law society. Now, people who know me and are listening to me think, oh, he, he was pretty benign about what he just said about <laughs> criticizing the judges and their viewpoints. I was on purpose, okay? Mm-hmm. Even that can land me in trouble with the law society. In fact, similar criticism with, of, of, of the courts and their vaccine mandates a couple years ago landed me in trouble with the law society and I had to defend myself, okay? Wow. So when they come, when they start coming for the lawyers like they came for Peterson, okay, and I'm gonna be one of the first ones they come for, uh, pe- people, people need to do something about it. They need to say, no, you're not gonna take away from us, because it's about them, it's not about me, by the way. They're not gonna mm-hmm. take away from us one of the few lawyers that actually defends our rights. You're not going to do it. We're not going to stand for it. So when they come for me and they start coming for the other lawyers who actually are brave enough to speak out about this, the people need to do something about it. Okay. Because mm-hmm. they, they can, they have the power to do something about it and, and, and they need mm-hmm. to. Okay. And just mm-hmm. by the way, for anybody who's not paying attention, that's not a call to violence. That's a call to people, <laughs> civil uh, protest uh, about this, intellectual protest mm-hmm. about this. Mm-hmm. So James, I, we know you're not a prophet. Um, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think you're the son of a prophet, but I'd love to get your, your perspective on this. Having brought up the nature of Justice Mosley, he's 74 years old. He's been serving in the legal world for almost 50 years. He's referencing all of these good precedents and, and clearly showing how charter rights have been violated in the decision. It's a long decision. The federal government has announced that they plan on appealing the decision. In light of... Justice Mosley, in light of the decision itself, taking into account the fact that there's a good chance that at least two of the three judges on the three-panel judge will be liberals, what do you think is going to happen with this appeal? How do you think that's going to go down? 
I, I, you know, if I'm being honest, I have to say it's going to be political. It's going to be, it's going to be where these three people want to take it. Um, I, I'd like to say, I think they'll care about the law. Uh, like Justice Mosley clearly did. Uh, I mean, he had to know, he had to know that he would become infamous. He spent nearly half a century as a lawyer and a judge who was, who was, I, I have no doubts thinking was completely unknown to the average regular person. Overnight, he has become famous. His name will now be known by thousands, hundreds of thousands of freedom-oriented patriot Canadians, okay? And he and his name will be scorned in the halls of power. And he had to know that, okay? Because he's not an idiot. I read his decision, he's not an idiot. And, and that's just it. He, his love for the law and the rule of law and his role as a judge obviously trumped that, which good for him. He's a man. Uh, with at least some integrity, so good for him. Um, those three judges will have to decide, do we like Justice Mosley and, and, and the great judges that have come before us care more about the rule of law and upholding it and fulfilling our role than about the political you know, consequences of our, of our decisions and the social consequences of our name be, being out there? That's what they will have to decide. If they follow the rule of law, they will uphold his decision, or in fact, even side more with the people who brought the case. Because again, it was a partial victory, not a complete one. That's what they will do. If they don't, um, then I will again be reading another decision that is just obviously political, that has less uh, case law citations, and and makes more excuses for the for the government. And um, so it's it, it's really sad. It's, it's like a lot of other things I tell my clients, you know, it's just going to depend on the politics of the judge. And that's, that's, you know, there's just, there's no way you look at the law and you say it, it, it was, it was freedom of expression and the right to privacy or the right to, to not be exposed to unreasonable search and seizure. Those were the two charter rights that were, that were breached. And those were obvious. The, the other ones he said, no. And I think there's a case that they could have been mad, had that they were breached, but those ones are obvious. There's just no way that you look at the law and don't say that seizing the accounts was a violation of Section 8 of the Charter. There's no way that you don't look at what happened with the, the, the orders and say, yeah, this is not a violation of free speech. Those are obvious. Those are the two things that Justice Mosley said were, were, were violated. These, Supreme, the, these, these Court of Appeal judges, going to be three of them at the Federal Court of Appeal, okay? There's no way that they vary that unless it's political. And so it's it's just it's just going to come down to that, you know what? And and, and I'll say this because it is political. And, and if we if we start actually being honest and talking about that, that's actually maybe a good thing because now these judges say they're on to us. And are we going to really follow our politics, or are, are we going to are we going to give the people what they want and what yeah. they need, and deserve, and we're going to uphold this decision? Hmm. Yeah, and and I think there is benefit to exposing that there is no neutrality, right? Canadians have been pretty sanguine about the law and how that is applied. And, um, you know, the worldview of the justices who are applying that law for far too long. And we've thought that we live in this weird, secular, humanistic society where all institutions are neutrally um, doing what's best for individuals. But we know that it's worldview that uh, colors all things and that neutrality is a myth. And ultimately that their, their politics, like you were saying, that will play a big part in their decision come from their most basic 
worldview commitments, their their religious commitments, um, because those religious commitments are how we even understand um, law in the first place, and which which laws are righteous, just, and good, and which laws are are evil and wicked, and and the like. So, I I I. Thank you so much, James, for all the amazing work that you've done for us, uh, for these conversations that are hopefully, I, I get it, legal theory, talking about the law, it might not be sexy, um, despite uh, sexy man being your middle name or whatever. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, it's it's not sexy to a lot of people, but it's so important. It's, yeah. it's actually, actually important. And I think we've tried to, though we use a lot of humor and levity on the program, we, we're trying to have serious adult conversations about our nation, mm-hmm. its current trajectory, and the worldview and religious uh, um, issues at the heart of all these discussions, because that is the root of, of, of what we're talking about. And if we want to see, see long-term reform, not just winning the next election with a fake conservative who will probably just keep the status quo anti, we must have these decisions. We must be an informed citizenry so we can actually be free men living freely under the law of God. So we appreciate you, James, your love for the law, your love for God's law and your love for Canadians rights and freedoms and all the work that you do there. So God bless you and all the work that you continue to do, man. Thank you for giving us, uh, your time and we'll probably have to have you on again because um, I'm sure there will be more coming down the pike uh, with the appeal and all, all those sorts of things so thanks for coming on that was great to be here yeah thanks so much James well Andrew it was a, a privilege obviously to be joined by both Dr. Rock and um, James uh, who's just done some amazing legal work and he is a pit bull um, as it comes to our, our freedoms as Canadian citizens and de- defending them in court. And I'm just, you know, struck when I, when I saw this decision um, come down, I posted on, on X formerly Twitter. Um, the federal court's decision is welcome. It's, it's a wonderful decision. Um, but a couple questions came immediately to my mind, Andrew, and they were these question one, do we have the political will to make sure the Trudeau regime is punished for this tyranny um, and ensure that this sort of thing never happens again in our nation. And question two, do we have the long-term vision? And this is what we've talked about with Aaron and James. Do we have the long-term vision to ensure our country by the grace of God remains glorious and free? Because the fact of the matter is the rule of law ought to be, you know, we, we should be a nation of laws, not a nation of men. But the fact of the matter is that rule of law and its integrity takes men and women, free citizens, actively and constantly and consistently defending it. And look what happens when generations of Canadians go to sleep. Within one generation, the freedoms that have been hard fought for, hard won over centuries and centuries and centuries can vanish just like that. We need to wake up. We need to push back. 
We need to have a long-term vision, and we need to have the political will to create change in our society and the cultural long-term vision. That's that's what we need. We mm-hmm. say it all the time on our program, but that's what we need, Andrew. Yeah, and I mean, we've said a lot. There's a lot to be said. Obviously, we're going to see how this appeal goes. More and more people will be commenting on it. Uh, what I want to say is that it appears that all hope is not lost in Canada. Um, and I'm, I'm thankful for, uh, for, for Aaron mentioning that as well, that this was unexpected, right? Even James, this was, this was shocking. We didn't expect this to, to be this way because there haven't been very many wins. So this, this little bright spot here is, is good. And so it appears all hope isn't lost, which means we need to continue to fight and work and engage. We need to continue to hold our elected officials accountable. We need to continue to engage wisely politically, which for again, for what it's worth, means not saying, aha, now's the time to vote in the conservatives. Because lest anyone forget, it was just a couple years ago that then leader of the conservative party, Aaron O'Toole, himself was calling for the invoking of the Emergencies Act. And do you think anyone in the party, do you think any conservative, federally or provincially said, oh, Aaron, no, that's bad? Of course not. You know why? Because they're all compromised. So lest you think that the answer is throwing our weight towards the blues, which are really reds covered in blues, that's that's a foolish endeavor. So we need to think more wisely, more intentionally, more shrewdly about our political engagement. We need to do the work that Aaron was saying, building institutions. Now's the time to build good schools. Now's the time to think about parallel economies. Now's the time to get to a good church. Now's the time to start businesses. These are all important things. And like James said, we need to not only hold our elected officials accountable, but one of the ways that Canadians need to think about engaging is by entering into the legal world. Mm-hmm. That we Amen. hope that we can we can raise up a generation of solid, biblical, righteous lawyers that will affect laws and that will judge justly someday. So my my my, my encouragement is that this is sign that. All hope is not lost in Canada. This is a sign that there can still be, there are still some righteous Gentiles out there, and there are still Christians who are doing good work. And so we need to continue to be faithful. And if nothing else, even if, even if this legal decision doesn't go the way we want, even if the appeal is granted to the federal government, at the end of the day, we know that all throughout this country, churches have been growing, people have been getting saved. The Lord is building his church. He is advancing his kingdom. And there is clear evidence that the Lord is at work in Canada. And we can say, and I can say with all of my heart, indeed, Aslan is on the move. And that that is the reason for us to be primarily hopeful. Even though this adds a little bit of extra supplemental hope, we are to be hopeful because if you survey what's happening in our country, there is no doubt that the Lord is accomplishing his good purposes and we need to join him and obey him in that. That's my encouragement for us with, again, the caveat that there's going to be much more information coming out, lots to talk about about this in the days ahead, I'm sure. Yeah, well, praise God for the heritage of Christians thinking through the law um, and applying that to society because we see that its effects are great 
and that it blesses thousands of generations, even one as wicked as ours. Um, the principles that founded our nation still got through um, and still were embedded in uh, Justice Mosley's mind, and we can be thankful for that. And that's all the more reason to continue to fight back in these different spheres of life. We really hope you enjoyed the program. We really hope you were encouraged um, by this decision, but we also hope that you are developing that long-term vision and that you're making the changes that need to be made in your life and the families in your family's lives to change our culture, to um, experience a reformation in Canada for freedom. Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to yoke of slavery. Until next time. Liberty Dispatch has been brought to you in partnership with Liberty Coalition Canada and Christian Week and has been produced by SDG Media. You can find all things Liberty Coalition Canada at libertycoalitioncanada.com.